This morning we're going to be talking about the reign of Christ. We're going back to Revelation. You've probably thought I forgot. We're just getting to the really good part, so I'm not going to forget. The reign, the reign of Christ. A little bit of review because it's been a while, but not much review. Hopefully you'll, you'll do some review on your own during the weeks. But in Revelation 1, verse 19, there was the scripture that kind of gave a very vague outline of the entire chapter. It said these words, Write therefore, and this is God speaking to John on the island of Patmos. He says, Write therefore what you have seen, in other words, what has taken place, what is now, and when we look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he's writing to the local churches, seven churches, and then he says, and what will take place later. When we get to Revelation chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, chapter 22, it is futuristic. He is prophesying by God through this vision that he's been given. So none of this has taken place. You know, and if you think about that, he is, he is talking about, God is giving him a revelation of something that's going to be taking place, we know at least 2,000 years later. And we wonder sometimes why some of the symbols or the pictures are hard to understand. You know, he's going to be seeing things even though it's from God, through his natural mind also. Who could have imagined if you're John on the island of Patmos, living in biblical times, what our world would look like today? So sometimes the symbolism is a little bit challenging. And as I've been saying since we started this study way back, way back, February, believe it or not, I've been saying we can all talk about the symbolism, different parts of his vision, And theologians do, and they don't agree on everything. And that's okay, and that's why I don't spend a lot of time in this teaching that we've been doing on what each symbol represents. But there is much of revelation that we don't have to wonder what it means. It's crystal clear, and that's the part that I've been trying to focus on. Not what all the symbols necessarily mean, but what happens or what message is being carried by whatever that symbol is. So in in chapters 4 through 22, all future, what will take place later. And 4 through 19, which we have completed, dealt with the tribulation. The seven years of what is called the tribulation. We went through the seals, and the seventh seal is opened to the trumpets, and the trumpets, the seventh trumpets, open to the seven bowls or vials of judgment. We are through all of that, and we are now in chapter 20. And chapter 20 tells us about what we call the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then when we get to chapters 21 and 22, he is talking about the eternal state, what eternity is going to be looking like. But Revelation 20 gives us a summary, and this is what we're looking at today, a summary of the amazing, awesome things that are going to take place in the 1,000-year reign of Christ himself when he comes back to earth. And when we look at this, as usual, theologians don't agree on all this stuff. They don't agree. Some believe that the millennial is spiritual. It's just, some believe it's just a, a word used for a long period of time. Others believe it means 1,000 years. 
the Latin word, which is what we get millennium from, means 1,000 years. In the Greek, the word that we would be seeing if you were looking at a Greek Bible here, this word is repeated, it's hilio, it's repeated seven times right here, excuse me, six times in just these few verses. I personally believe it's a thousand years, literally. There's different views of the millennium, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these. If it interests you, you can study it, but I want to lay them out. There's at least three primary ones, and I want to just give you a brief explanation of what they are so I can tell you which one I believe is true so you know where I'm coming from. And again, people do not necessarily agree on this. They don't at all. First view is called the premillennial view. What does pre mean? Before. Premillennial view. The premillennial view would be the literal interpretation, as best we can understand it, of chapter 20. We are going to take literally what the obvious, most common meaning is. We're not going to try to spiritualize it all. We're not going to make allegories of it all. We're going to try and look at it as, as we read it in a literal interpretation. We believe, if you are pre-millennial view, you believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ is actually going to happen. As soon as the seven years of tribulation ends, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to reign for 1,000 years, and at the end of 1,000 years, judgment is going to occur. The premillennial view. Then there's what's called the post-millennial view. The post-millennial view meaning that basically, and really I'm simplifying this, but basically adherents to this point of view believe that the church is going to do this amazing job of evangelizing the world. And most, if not all, of the world is going to be Christian and or controlled by Christian beliefs, doctrine, and principles. In other words, they believe that there is a rain coming, but it's not, Jesus is coming back, but it's not going to take place until the church has Christianized the globe. Then there's the amillennial view. And this view denies the literal reign of Christ. The amillennial view tends to spiritualize almost everything. Lots of symbols, lots of allegory. And they, they look at it as Satan, if you can, <laughs> you're going to be, realize this isn't my view. They look at it as if Satan was bound when Jesus came the first time. And he's been bound ever since. So he really isn't a problem today. I think, I think we're warned that he's like a roaring lion roaming to see who he can devour. But many, many brilliant theologians believe this and teach this. They also believe that it's being fulfilled, therefore, right now on earth. The good news or the bad news is, according to this view, we are living in the millennium right now. Because it's spiritual, Jesus isn't present here. As a matter of fact, he's never going to really reign. It's all meant to be spiritual. So those are the three, and that, that, that's really very brief. But I want you to see that there's three, and I want to tell you that I am a premillennial person. I believe that Jesus is coming back as soon as the seven years of tribulation is over. That's when I say pre, he's coming back first. Then we're having a thousand-year reign of Christ during the millennium. And then as soon as that's over with, 
the white throne judgment is going to occur. So that's where my bias is going to be coming from as we go through chapter 20. I think there are many, many scriptures throughout the text of scripture that, that would reinforce that. But even saying that, the post-millennials and the amillennials would tell you the same thing. So with that, as a proponent of it, I want you to realize I'm looking at it, taking it as literally as I possibly can, whatever the obvious meaning is, but that never rules out that there may be figures of speech used, that never rules out that there aren't some symbols used, There's not, there might be some allegories used. All of those things are possible, but my position is take it literally whenever it's the most obvious, clear thing to do. So when we left off in chapter 19, the last verse of chapter 19, if you remember during the tribulation, the Antichrist, the false prophet, driven by the dragon or the devil himself, have been raising all kinds of problems. Persecuting the church, executing believers if they didn't take the sign of the beast. All of those things have been taking place. And when you get to that last verse in chapter 19, it says these things. The beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. The lake of brimstone, the lake of burning sulfur, depending on your translations. They are thrown alive into the lake. My flesh says, about time. Thank goodness. But what about Satan? And that's what we find Satan at this time in chapter 20 is going to be dealt with by God, at least for a period of time. So let's look at chapter 20. We're going to read first the first three verses. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a period of time. Now, when I read those first three verses, the last sentence is what grabs a hold of me. And we'll touch on that later, not so much right now. Because it's like, holy cow, Lord. We went through seven years of the tribulation, and we've been going since the Garden of Eden with the devil causing trouble, and you finally throw him into the abyss, and now you're going to let him out eventually? What in the world is he thinking? He usually has a purpose, doesn't he? Notice when we read those verses. First of all, it's an angel sent by God. One of the things that we should realize from that is God didn't have to come himself. He didn't send Jesus. And he didn't send Michael the archangel. It just says he sent an angel. And he gave him authority and power represented by the chain that he had and the key to the abyss. He sent an angel. Now we don't know just where he was in the, the hierarchy of angels, but what it tells me is God could have dealt with Satan anytime he wanted to. He sends an angel, gives him his authority, and gives him his power and says, go. The key to the abyss, this bottomless pit. 
And I love reading those words in those first three verses, the way, in my mind, these are my words, the way the angel comes and he just manhandles the devil. Now, I'm not trying to say the devil isn't good at what he does. He is. And he has power and authority. And he was an impressive angel before he sinned and fell from heaven. But look at the way this angel comes and deals with him. It says he seizes him. He just grabs a hold of him. And then he binds him. And then he takes him bound and throws him in the pit. And then he shuts it, locks it, seals it. For a thousand years. He's removed. And by implication and by what we see in the rest of Scripture, it seems like not only Satan, but all the demons with him are gone into the pit. So God or Jesus is clearing the way for the reign of Christ. We need to remember, first of all, Satan's power is limited by God. Even though he is evil and vile and there's not a thing good in him, God uses him over and over and over to bring about his purposes. And he's using him now, and believe it or not, at the end of the millennium, a thousand years from this moment, he's going to let him go and let him out to use him one more time. Laid hold of, bound him, threw him, shut it, sealed it. Notice why. Obviously, the abyss is probably not a pleasant place. But Satan wasn't really being thrown in there. God's primary purpose for putting in there was not to punish him. It was to restrain him. He's being thrown into this pit and they're locking it up and sealing it so he can have no influence, no influence whatsoever on the earth for the thousand-year reign of Jesus. He's being restrained. And then it says... There's going to come a time when he must be. Notice that word must in there. He must be released. That word in the Greek has a couple different meanings, but it really it means it is the only logical and moral outcome that can take place. So whenever we get to this where he is going to be released, we can rest assured that God has a purpose for letting him out. He has to be released. He must be released for God's purposes to be fulfilled. As hard as that might seem for us to understand. Going to Revelation chapter, chapter 20, verse 4. John's still in this vision. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Just a little side word. The word there that's beheaded really in the Greek has a more general sense, means executed. Executed. So all those that were executed for the testimony of Jesus because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. They were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Who are the rest of the dead? The unbelievers. All of the, first, all of the believers are first raised to the dead, or it's called the first resurrection. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So before we look at the scriptures exactly, I think it's important that we just step back and say, who's going to be on the earth during the millennium? Who is Jesus coming back to reign over? Who are all the believers throughout time being raised to rule with Christ over? Well, even though the church was raptured way back, even though the seven years of tribulation and all of the execution of all of those who would not receive the mark of the beast, they're all been killed. Who's left? Well, we know going back, there's at least 144,000, right? But there's also many who survived. Many who survived. So on the earth we have the group, the resurrected, that would have glorified bodies just like Jesus had. We'd have those that survived during the tribulation and were al are alive when Jesus comes back, and they would have natural human bodies, and they're going to be on the earth for a long, long time, and they're going to continue to have children. And in a thousand years, that's a lot of kids. And then there's going to be a third group that we might not think about or even understand how this could be true, but there is going to be unbelievers on the earth during that 1,000-year reign of Christ. And we'll dwell on that or talk about that in just a few minutes. We need to also understand a biblical truth that doesn't ever change. Salvation comes by grace through faith. When Jesus comes back, everybody on the earth doesn't universally become Christian. It doesn't happen that way. When Jesus comes back, he is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Satan and the demons are gone, so that temptation's not there. God is going to rule through Christ on the earth in a perfect environment. Hard to imagine. And then Satan is going to be released. When we look at the first resurrection, and sometimes we can get confused by these things, but the first resurrection is what? The saints that died in faith throughout history. Then it talks about a second resurrection that's going to happen at the end when the dead or those others that remain in the grave, they will be raised at the end of the millennium to be sentenced. And then we see during this whole time the believers ruling and reigning with Christ. Then it says something about a second death. And the second death is when you are thrown into the lake of fire. And therefore, we see it talks about has no power over believers. Believers do not need to be concerned about the second death, at least for their own well-being. We should be very concerned about it for all those that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior because they're going to stand before the Lord one day and get the sentence read to them. Guilty. And they're going to be cast alive into the lake of fire for all eternity. It should impact us. 
It should challenge us to be sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This first resurrection, as you look through the words in the scripture, is a resurrection of blessing. It's a resurrection of power. The, the sin and death will have no power over them. And it's a resurrection of being put into position as priests to reign with Christ for a thousand years. What an amazing resurrection. The second resurrection, not so much. Unbelievers being raised to be sentenced, found guilty, and cast into hell for eternity. There's a scripture in the Gospel of John that relates to these two resurrections. It says this in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves, their graves, will hear his voice, and they will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. If you read that at first glance, it makes it almost sound like works is determining factor. The done good here means one thing and one thing only. Those that have accepted Jesus Christ by faith as their personal Lord and Savior. Those are the only ones that will rise and live. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. <clears throat> when the thousand years is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. And remember, this is at the end of the millennium. It's the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's at this time when there's been no devil, no demons, nobody working against us. And yet, Satan's going to be released, and the number that will be deceived are going to be multitudes like the sands of the seashore. Hard to imagine. And verse 9 says, They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The millennium is going to be a time of unprecedented peace, unprecedented prosperity, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, it's going to impact everything politically, physically, spiritually, morally. It's going to be amazing. And yet, multitudes are going to be deceived. It's going to be like that because Satan is bound and he's in that abyss, that pit. And then he's released. And the questions, two questions come to my mind right away when I read that, read that even now, still does. What and why? What in the world are you thinking? And why would you release Satan? And we are told right here in Scripture that the outcome initially is going to be multitudes are going to be deceived. And when you think about that, how can this be when he's reigned for a thousand years? We're outwardly people are going to be compelled to live in accordance to the rule of Christ. That doesn't mean there has been an inward change in everyone that is living an outward way in the obedience of Christ. 
That shouldn't surprise us because it's the same way today. God only knows the heart. We don't. But there are multitudes even yet today who are living a life that looks like they have surrendered their lives to Christ. But if we could see their heart, there has not been an inward transformation. And this is what was taking place, I believe, will be taking place in the time of the millennium. As I said earlier, Jesus' reign and his rule does not get everybody saved just because he comes back. And over a thousand years, you can imagine how many generations of people with mortal bodies, just like ours, are going to be born. And they're going to be living in this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time of almost perfection. And yet hearts aren't changed. And in the midst of this, Satan can be released. You find that hard to believe? I do until I'm reminded of another place of perfection where a man named Adam and his wife Eve lived in the garden in perfection. No sin. It says they walked in the evening, the cool of the evening, they walked with God, visiting with God, talking with God. And yet what happened? Satan, the serpent, deceived them and they fell. And humankind has been paying a price ever since. And God's overall plan is to restore that kind of community, restore that kind of fellowship and intimacy and relationship with his people through Christ and the work that he's accomplished. He comes out. He's released. It shows us something about Satan himself. He is just flat out evil. I mean, I've been locked up for a thousand years. Will I learn anything? Obviously not Satan. He is evil to the core. To the core. And it also, again, teaches us a great deal about the human heart. The human heart, without the grace of God, the grace of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, without the new birth experience, the heart of humankind is basically evil and at enmity with God. So quickly they are deceived. And they gather together this massive multitude and it says they come. Basically what that means is they came from all corners of the earth, surrounded Jerusalem to do war, to do battle. Shortest battle in history. Before it even started, fire from heaven came down and devoured them all. And then it says, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and is tormented day and night forever. If you think about those who believe in annihilation, meaning this life is all there is, when we die we just return to dust, there's nothing left. He gets thrown in to the lake of fire He'd been in the abyss for a thousand years. The false prophet and the Antichrist, which were men, mortal men, have been thrown into the lake of fire a thousand years before, and they're still there. There is no such thing as annihilism, the torment, the second death, the, the time in hell 
is eternal. It never changes. They've been there a thousand years and now Satan finally joins them. Let's read the last section, starting at verse 11. Satan's now been thrown into the lake of fire. All the multitudes that he deceived have been destroyed by fire from heaven. And now he sees a throne, a great white throne. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. In other words, there was no place to hide from the judgment of God. No place. And I saw the dead, great and small, God is not a respecter of persons, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. I believe there might be a symbol of symbolism there of the fact that you know sometimes we say, what happens to those who weren't buried in a grave? I think that those in the sea would cover all of that. The ga- sea gave up the dead that, and then that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the last and final judgment that's going to take place. And it follows the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. At the end of 1,000 years, all of this is going to happen suddenly. And judgment is going to occur. We can only imagine some of the details of this white throne judgment. But we know that every single unbeliever throughout history is going to go before that throne. Most theologians, and I don't pretend to be a theologian, but I agree with this most group, believe that we as believers will never stand before the white throne of God. Why? Because our sins were judged when Jesus was on that cross and sentence was given. Jesus had to die for our sins. And those sins will never ever be held against us ever again. So this white throne judgment is for the unbeliever. There is going to be a time where we stand before God and it says we are judged, but it's a judgment that determines our rewards as the children of God. But it's not this white throne judgment. And this white throne judgment is what should concern every single one of us. Because everybody that does not accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior is going to stand before this throne. And if you picture in your mind a courtroom, when does the defendant stand before the judge? Not during the trial. Not when evidence is being weighed. That defendant stands when sentence is going to be given. So really, when it looks in those books about their good deeds, their bad deeds, Really, none of that matters. This section of Scripture says, there is another book, the book of life. 
And if your name is not written in the book of life, it is evidence that you rejected Christ. You ignored Christ. You denied God. And you're standing now before the judge and you're going to receive your sentence. The name's not in the book of life. The sentence is the same. For all those millions that are going to stand before that throne, the sentence is the same. Guilty. The lake of fire. For eternity. Forever and ever and ever. Great and small. It won't matter who you are, who you've been, or what you've got, or what you've done on this earth if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more important than your name being in that book. And the only way your name will be in the book of life is you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that's true for everybody you know, every friend, every family member, everyone. If the name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, the lake of fire is the outcome. If nothing else motivates us to evangelize, that ought to do it. The false prophet, the Antichrist, they've already, they were already there a thousand years when this happens. And Satan's now throwing in there. And then everybody else is going in where the flesh will never be devoured. There is no such thing as annihilation. They are going to live forever, separated from the presence of God in eternal torment. I want to conclude this morning with two scriptures from Romans that deal with this, talk about this. In Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 22, this righteousness of God comes through faith, faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's guilty, but they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The only way. Everybody would stand before that throne. They are guilty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our sins were put on Him. He became sin on our behalf. He took the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. He died. Our sin has already been judged and the sentence was given. And Jesus paid the sentence. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That should be each and every one of us if we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Personally, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear of the white throne judgment. Nothing. But there should still be great concern. 
for those that do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I believe one of the reasons that we are given this revelation through John is to motivate us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those we come in contact with. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of redemption. The word says that before the foundations of the world, you had this plan set in place. That you knew what was going to happen. And you allowed it to happen. You gave us free will so that our love for you would be a choice that each one make. God, I thank you for Jesus and his obedience and his love for us that he went to the cross, died for our sins, paid the penalty that your justice was met, that you truly could call us your children and we could call you Father. Lord, I pray you would stir in each one of our hearts a burden for the lost, those that don't know Jesus, Father, your word tells us so clearly that it's not your desire that any should perish. But all that reject Christ will. Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness towards us, your love for us. And I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, allow us to love others that way. That we would minister your love to the world that's looking for your love. We pray, God, that all these things would be done for your glory and for your honor. And I pray also now, Lord, as we leave this morning, that we go and we remember. We remember what we did when we received communion. We remember what you did and what those symbols represent. I pray that we would go and we would walk by faith, hearing your voice, allowing your Holy Spirit to be our guide. Father, give us a boldness and love share the good news of the gospel with those we come in contact with. Pray you'd watch over us and keep us safe. Father, I pray also this weekend for many, many, many who are traveling. God, pray for the community of Tracy and the surrounding areas. Many, many people will be on the road and gathering. Pray for safety and protection. In Jesus' name, amen.